We continue on this morning in um, the Doctrines of Grace, and we've been comparing views of the Atonement. And we'll continue um, in this section of our lectures uh, for a bit more. There's some, some more I have to say on this. But as you recall, <clears throat> we were looking at the, the three main points that all Orthodox Christians agree on, both the Reformed and the Arminian, that there is value in Jesus Christ's atonement. It is necessary for salvation. Number two, there is a benefit to all people um, by Christ's uh, coming and by his uh, atonement. And number three, we agree both Reformed and Arminians, that not all people will be saved. Now moving on to our new section, I'd like us to open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 21 through 26 if you follow along with me in your Bibles. It's always good to open with the Word of God, is it not? Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift." through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." As you know, with, with Pastor Steve's preaching at the 11 a.m. through Romans, there's so much in that letter theologically. There's so much that has to do with our doctrines in there. Excuse me while I prepare the board for our next part, but I did want to go over these points of commonality amongst almost all Orthodox Christians. It is important that we see what we hold in common with those that have a different view of salvation, but yet are Orthodox um, in their view. Both we of the Reformed faith and Arminians agree that the atonement must be limited in some way. Either it's limited in its effects, get a better marker, I have many markers to choose from thanks to our sister Linda R who gave me a whole box of them and they're going to last for quite a while. So the, the, 
The atonement is either limited in its effects. What do I mean by that? Christ died for all, but not all get saved. Or it's limited in its scope. Christ did not die for all, but all for whom he died will be saved. So if we talk about the effects here, Christ died for all, but not all get saved. Does that fall amongst, in Reformed theology or Arminian theology, would you say? Arminian. Arminian, very good. So then scope would be Reformed theology, right? Now, at this point, I intend on giving you a visual illustration, which means I must draw. And those of you that have been in my classes, like on Wednesday night, you remember my uh, artistic ability. Um, so bear with me. I'll explain to you what I'm drawing, because <laughs> you may not, you may be like, ah, I have no idea what that's supposed to be. So really, this comes from um, uh, a theologian by the name of Lorraine uh, Bettner, you may have heard of him, very, very good theologian, gives an illustration of two bridges over a deep canyon. So we have this deep canyon to symbolize eternity. We have the near side, the fallen world, the far side, the heavenly far country. The first bridge, it's very wide, but it goes halfway across. A lot of people can get on it. A lot of people can start to cross, but it's up to those people to find a way to get to the other side to, 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 to um, bridge over the rest of the canyon of eternity. It's up to the people on the bridge. This... This we might call what's what's the uh, what would you call this between Reformed and Arminianism? Arminianism. There's another term I want to talk about that you may be familiar with, maybe not. Sometimes this is also called, and it, there's a little bit of a difference in the definition. Sometimes it's called semi. Pelagianism. Now, drawing on your memories, if you if you can think back and, and pull up this information um, really quickly, we talked about this fellow uh, near the beginning of this series, so it's been well over a year, um, by the name of... Uh, Pelagius. 
Does anyone remember and can tell us uh, what Pelagius was kind of known for, what idea he came up with? Anything in that, Linda? Isn't he the one that believed that we're born like as blank slates and then it's all about free will? Um, right, yeah. Not exactly free sl uh, blank slates, I would say. But any other thoughts? Brendan? That, that we're not totally depraved, that there is what a spark of the divine in there. Yeah, um, so Pelagius <clears throat> was a British monk. And he travels from the British Isles and he goes to Rome. And he's so excited to go to Rome because it's the center of the Western church. And he expects so much holiness there. Oh, I'm going to be amongst all of these Christians. This is, this is the headquarters. It's got to be great. He gets there and he finds a debauched city. And he finds the church leaders are just as debauched as the people in the streets. And he is just stricken by heart. So he, he's, he thinks this over, and he was very much a part of what we might call the aesthetic movement, like, you know, like a monk, living like a monk, you know, this, this very, uh, uh, this life deprived of uh, physical uh, pleasures sort of thing, that if you live strictly, uh, then you will become holy. Well, he did not believe in original sin, nor did he believe in predestination. He believed that man could be perfectly righteous apart from God's grace, that we could live perfectly moral, sinless lives. So we're not inherently sinful, according to Pelagius. Well, this was declared as heresy by the church in the early 5th century at the Council of Carthage. So you could see that Pelagianism was, was, um, Pelagianism was rejected. So then, <clears throat> like every heresy in the church, if you, if you notice in um, the teachings and in maybe your readings, that heresies never go away completely they surface again and again. So later in the same century, another similar heresy, semi-Pelagianism, surfaces. So when, as, I, as we speak about these things, both Arminianism, no, excuse me, not Arminianism, because that is, that is orthodox, but Pelagianism is what I meant to say, and semi-Pelagianism, I want you to notice how closely these thoughts from, from these systems match what very many Christians believe and express today. And I want you to see how this heresy comes back, but it's not labeled as such. It's labeled as, you know, things like loving, tolerant, so on and so forth. So semi-Pelagianism. This was an idea where um, many church uh, leaders, the, the bishops, etc., um, the overseers of the church, wanted to find a middle way, in media res, we would say in Latin, a middle way between um, Augustine's view, which 
is Reformed, basically Reformed theology, and Pelagianism. There's got to be something in between. They're trying to, you know, split the loaf in half. We can make everybody happy sort of thing. So semi-Pelagianism adds to the mix that the first steps towards salvation uh, are dependent upon man. Man must make that step, and then God looking down, oh, wonderful, you know, you're, you're uh, interested in being reunited, restored to me, so I will help you along the way. Um, man and God work together. So in semi-Pelagianism, you've got these people here that before the bridge is even built, they got to take their little shovels and start digging the foundation. And then God reacts uh, to that. The other bridge is on the same sort of landscape, of course. It's narrow. Passage over it is limited. But it, notice, what does it do? It completely spans the divide of eternity, doesn't, doesn't it? It gets those who are on the bridge all the way across from the fallen world to the heavenly far country. And we don't have to start the construction of it. The bridge does all the work. The narrow bridge actually does the job that it's designed for. So, this is an obvious question, but we must be clear. Who is the bridge designer? God. God, yes. Very good. When the bridge designer not only designs the bridge, but he owns the bridge. And he owns the land on which it is built. And he even owns the deep canyon over which it spans. Then I ask you, is it immoral for that bridge designer to determine who crosses his bridge? It all belongs to him, doesn't it? If we could imagine ourselves owning some property, building something upon it, and then deciding who gets to use whatever we've built upon our property, we can see the correlation of sovereignty here because we know ourselves to be sovereign over our stuff, don't we? At least in theory. So this here brothers and sisters, as I'm sure you see, is the reformed position. And I ask you, this bridge that's entirely built by an, e by an eternal and omnipotent bridge designer, 
Could that bridge crumble and fall? It would be built perfectly, wouldn't it? Now, what if our bridge was like this, and we had to erect some planks to try and get over to the other side? You ever watch those movies or YouTube videos where there's a deep, deep cavern, and there's like a really narrow thing that people, I can't watch that stuff. <laughs> I, I couldn't get across that, brethren. Could this one crumble? On this, at least on this side. Absolutely. And it will. If it's built by man, it will eventually fall apart. It's subject to decay. Could the bridge designer, I ask you, build a bridge that is very wide, like this, but all the way across? Yes, Evan says yes, he could. Yes, God can do what God wills to do, right? Why do you think, and this, of course, you know, is, there's, I'm not going to say there's a right answer or a wrong answer, um, but there could be a wrong answer. So why would, why would God not do this thing? Michelle. Because it makes salvation more precious because not everybody gets it. Salvation more precious. Oh, very good. I like that. Brendan, I saw your hand start to go up. Yeah, I would say that's just the way he purposed it within himself, his decree. It's kind of like he chose Israel in the beginning. He said, I chose you not because you're big or mighty or many in numbers. I just chose you because that is my divine will. Very good. I'm going to come back to that. But Linda R. and then the gentleman in the back. Linda? Say it shows his justice, that side of him. That's very good. How, how so, would you say? Because he judges sin, you know, of everyone going against his decree and his commands. Right. Very good. Yes, sir. I think it puts, that, it puts salvation in the hands of man. Because uh, man determines, first of all, whether or not if he's going to choose God. And man can't choose because the will of man is against God in the first place. Right. So we're talking about original sin. We're talking about the fact that we are, um, as we've learned, we're totally depraved when it comes to our salvation. Not that we are as, as evil and wicked as we possibly could be. Linda. Well, I was just thinking, like, in your little scenario where you've got the bridge there, you know, the detail, the other information that we really didn't discuss is the fact that the fallen world is is being going to be destroyed, and the people that are on that side hate, you know, they don't want to get over there, they, they love where they are, and they are rebels and enemies. So God doesn't have to open the gate to any of them. And so he, he's, he's being gracious to say, hey, 
some of you get to come over here and be, you know, be safe. Um, so. Yeah. Barry. What if, wouldn't it be like the, in Romans 1, 16, it says the power of the gospel is the power of God to salvation. So if, if that's the truth, which it is, wouldn't it be contradiction? Why does the path that narrows the gate? If that wasn't the way it was going to be anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so here's the thing about our doctrines and our theology is that we find it in scripture, right? So we, we point this out, but there are people that don't agree with this doctrine who see the same thing in Scripture. So sometimes we have to kind of expand upon it. Like, yes, it's there, um, but what does it mean? How, how do we explain that? But God's Word is the best answer for everyone. There's power in God's Word. We do not have to defend God's Word. God's Word is mighty. But we talk about this stuff, and we use illustrations, we use analogies, we discuss so that we may understand it better. That, that, that's, the, that's the main point here. So all of you gave very good answers and understand this very good. God is protecting the heavenly far country, like Linda was talking about. People that are left on this side are rebels. We once all were rebels. Traitors against the throne of God, trying to establish ourselves usually upon that throne rather than uh, admitting that God is sovereign over all things. So there are, all of these things that we've talked about are very good uh, reasons for why God does what he does. And so when we're in discussion with people that don't understand this point of view, brothers and sisters, you're, you're, you're very well equipped to properly express this point of view. So I'm heartened by that. So like Brother Barry was talking about, our reform position is when the Lord was talking about the narrow way of the cross, which but takes us all the way to salvation. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Charles Spurgeon, the prince of peace, preachers, argued that those who deny particular redemption, which we're speaking of, the limited atonement, particular redemption, he argues that those are the ones who actually limit the atonement. Now, <clears throat> this would come, I think, as a shock to, to those who uh, argue for a general or unlimited atonement, but Charles Spurgeon, and I'm using his words here more or less, I'm kind of paraphrasing in parts. Here's Spurgeon's argument. Arminians say, Christ died for all men. So then ask them, did Christ die to secure the salvation of all men? They will say, no, certainly not. Ask them, did Christ die to secure the salvation of any man in particular? 
they will answer no. Christ has died so that any man may be saved if, if. And after the if, then follow certain conditions of salvation that can vary depending on the person who's speaking from the Arminian point of view. So Spurgeon then asks, who is it then that limits the death of Christ? Is it the Arminian that places man's conditions on salvation and says that Christ did not die so as infallibly, in a certain absolutely sure way, to secure the salvation of anybody? Spurgeon goes on, we of the Reformed faith beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say that Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot, by any possibility, run the hazard of being anything but saved. Spurgeon closes with this. Now, who is it that limits Christ's atonement? I think he puts it very well, doesn't he? So now, we want to move to our next section, which is the design of the atonement. Excuse me. I guess I've just been writing too much. <laughs> the board's still wet. Yeah, I could see that. The board's dry, it doesn't erase well. If it's wet, it doesn't write well. If I could think on my feet really quick, I would come up with a theological lesson out of that. There we go. Okay. So, now moving on to the design of the atonement. We come to the real question. So the real question really is not whether the death of Jesus Christ has sufficient value. Sufficient value to atone for the sins of the entire world. Because it does, doesn't it? As many theologians have said, Christ has the power to 
atone for all sins in this world and every other world that possibly could be. The question isn't really whether his death benefits all people in some limited sense. We've talked about that and we, and we determined it does. We came up with how it does. Here's the real question. The real question is about the design of the atonement. What did God the Father intend to do? Through the atonement. What did he intend to do by sending his son to die for us? And did the son, Jesus Christ, actually do it? Did he accomplish it? This is what we might call, back when I was um, on a SWAT team, that we, this is what we call the mission objective. This is the same sort of thing in the military when they're given uh, orders to go out and do something. You're given a mission objective. You know what you intend to do. You just don't turn a SWAT team or a military unit loose and say, go do whatever you know, you're trained to do. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. What is the purpose of the Son coming and the Holy Spirit sent by the Father and the Son later? What is, what is the purpose of this mission? And once we determine the purpose of the mission, we must ask, ask, did Jesus Christ actually do it? So the following questions frame this issue. Did Jesus' death actually redeem anyone? Did his sacrifice of himself make a true propitiation? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Speaking of our Lord, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 2, 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now here, where God's word says he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, whom is the text referring to when it says brothers? Yes, sir. Yes, not his half-brothers that he lived with, right? Not, not the five men whose names we read in the gospel, but God's elect people, brothers and sisters. 
Next question we have to answer, or ask and answer. Did Jesus' death reconcile any specific individual to God? So is there a specific reconciliation? See how we're drilling down into this idea of atonement? Last question. Was it an actual atonement? What do I mean by asking that question? An actual atonement compared to a possible potential atonement is what the question is asking. <clears throat> so if we answer yes to these questions, then for whom did our Lord do these things? As we've discussed before, and you can see I'm kind of trying to drive something home here, did Jesus' death actually, actually save anyone? Is atonement an actuality? Or did it only make the gift of salvation possible? Is atonement only a potentiality? This is the difference that we're seeing between Arminianism and Reformed theology. Linda, yes. Well, I don't know if it would be included in one of these or if it's sort of a separate point, but I think it's very significant to acknowledge whether it was substitutionary because if he was if he died as a substitute for someone, how could that person then not you know um, be given applied how can the atonement not be applied to that person? That's a good point. Lynn, just just a minute, Brendan. Let me exp let me repeat what Linda said because people watching live stream or listening to video often can't hear the audience. We don't have the microphone set up that way. So Linda says, um, um, and I'm re correct me if I get this wrong, uh, Jesus' death is a substitu substitutionary sacrifice, right? So that's what propitiation means. So as a substitute, he's, he's standing in for something or someone, right? So Linda's point is there's got to be an actual thing or person being substituted for. It doesn't make sense that it's just as general. It's like Jesus substituted himself for blank. Fill in the blank, whoever you want. Did I get that? Kind of? Good point. Brendan. Add to that, we have in the Gospel of John, all those whom the Father has given to me, nobody takes them out of my hand. That pertains to all of this here. Yes. And he is, Jesus Christ is, you know, the sole mediator between us and the Father. Yeah. Brendan is pointing us to John chapter 6, the great teaching that Jesus gives after the feeding of the multitudes, right? 
and he reveals hard things that cause many of his disciples, all except 11 and one fake, to turn away from him, right? And the thing that, one of the things he says that's very hard is that you cannot come to me unless the Father gives you to me. So it takes man's choice out of it. Yes, sir. This is in Romans chapter 8, verses 30, says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called. And whom he called, them he justified. And whom he justified, them he glorified. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Absolutely. Romans chapter 8, the great chain of salvation that we talk about that really encapsulates the Reformed system of theology, our, our, our faith. Steve, did you have something? Oh, okay. So, here's our questions, right? There are only three potential answers. Try it this way, so I don't make the board too wet. You know, I had the opportunity once upon a time in my last career to be sent to Boston to a, an advanced management school taught by the professors from the JFK School of Government at Yale, taught at Boston University Law School, and they had blackboards all the way up to the ceiling, and they would use these ropes to bring them up and down. They didn't have to erase. Well, these professors never erased anything anyway. They had teaching aides that, that raised and lowered blackboards, erased stuff for them, ran and got them water. So it'd be nice to have something like that where I, I wouldn't have to erase this. Maybe I need a teaching assistant. No, just kidding. Okay, so there's only three possible answers. And we're going to go through these, see how much time, how, we'll see if we can get through it, these, these three answers. We're going, to go, we're going to go through by a process of elimination and find the answer. Jesus' death was not an actual atonement. Our second option. Well, let me, let me add some things to this. It was not an actual atonement, but only something that made atonement possible. The atonement becomes possible when the sinner repents of his or her sin. So what is that known as? It's, we have Reformed theology, we have Arminianism. This is really the uh, Arminian and the key, the clue, is actual. The Arminian position holds that it is a potential atonement. Number two was an actual 
atonement. For the sins of God's elect people, resulting in those elect people and only those elect people being delivered from the penalty of sin. What is this view known as? Reformed. Or Calvinism, Michelle says. Or, if we want to be pointed, we could say that's the biblical view. Number three. Jesus' death was an actual atonement. For all at all times. Anyone know what we could call this? Universalism. Very good. Now here's my comment on this, is, is really, um, <clears throat> in some respects, although we certainly we reject universalism, the universalist gives more credence to what Christ did in comparison to the Arminian. So, not that it makes it right, but there's a higher view of Christ's death, his atonement, his sacrifice with the universalists. But what's the problem with this? Is Number three is not biblical, is it? And the church at all times in orthodoxy has rejected universalism. Interestingly, do we see universalism being as resoundly rejected today as in church history? No, we, we do not. It goes along with semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism. Linda, yes. You, you know, when Christ died and he said, it is finished, you need to, like, ask, ask the, or, well, not number two, number one, Arminian, okay, what did he finish? What did he accomplish when he said it was finished? You know, obviously, he didn't accomplish what he came to do. That's a very good point. Christ on the cross said, it is finished. It's either finished or it's not. What has been accomplished? Is, is Linda's uh, comment on that. Now, we're going to talk some more about this, but I look at the clock and I see that we've run out of time. So hold this in your minds or in your notes or whatever, or I'll give you a reminder next time we meet. But for now, we'll, we'll end with this idea of the design of the atonement, and we're going to speak a little bit more about that uh, as we go on. So pray with me. And we'll close, and you'll have a 10-minute break upon my amen. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your salvation that you have brought to us. Father, help us to understand it. 
Father, not, not to make ourselves comfortable, but to understand your plan, Father, to understand what you have revealed to us so that we may be more faithful and more obedient to you. That's what we desire, Father. Bless the rest of this morning service. Bless Pastor Steve as he brings the word in preaching. Bless Pastor Mike as he brings our, our music and worship, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.